May the 22nd, 2011, lecture discussion number 36 on the book of Romans. That's where we are last week for those who were missing. And for those who need reminding, which is all of us, we return to Romans chapter 3, more specifically Romans 3.19. And uh, where once again, and it is not by accident, where once again Paul the Apostle, with the guidance and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he restates and he reaffirms Romans 1.20. Romans 1.20 says, and I'll read it for you here and put it on the board a little bit, for since the creation of the world, since the creation, we get that out out of the gate so that you have no doubt, His invisible attributes. What's the obvious question? Why is He invisible? Are clearly seen. Wait a minute, how can I be invisible and clearly seen simultaneously? That tells you there's something very special here. Being understood by the things that are made. Again, that ties you back to where? To creation, in case you think things weren't made. The invisible is clearly made, made, invisible, clearly seen. Do you have that so far? His eternal, being understood by the things that are made. Let me, uh, I skipped one. Things. What's the obvious question? You have to define things. Even His eternal power and Godhead, just in case you do not believe in the doctrine of the triune Godhead, He makes sure that this is here. And they, so they, I'm sorry, and I'll reread it, are without excuse. So there you go. There's that verse set aside for you. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power. And I left off eternal power because it is obvious, but just in case you are not understanding the doctrine of immortality for the soul, there it is. Even His eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. Now, the they who are without excuse, that's pretty obvious. In Romans 1.20, is all of us, is all of humanity. We are without excuse. We're also among the things that are made, just in case you thought otherwise. You are a made thing by the eternal power of the Godhead. And you are without excuse. Now, that raises a bunch of fundamental obvious questions as opposed to obvious questions. There are the most obvious of the obvious questions. And there are the fundamental obvious questions. The fundamental obvious questions are those questions that everybody must ask and everybody must answer. They are the concrete of the foundation, if you will. The foundational questions. So there's your question. Let's get into those. Why are we without excuse? We are without excuse. Why? What's the next obvious question? If we are without excuse... What excuses are we trying? What excuse or excuses are being attempted? But we're without excuses, so why are all the excuses that we attempted cast aside? Welcome. You are the only members of the family that survived the wedding. Congratulations. (laughs) Good to see you guys. What excuses were attempted? Why were they all cast aside? 
when are the excuses that humanity brings forward declared to be groundless? When exactly are we without excuse? At what judicial procedure? Who presides at this procedure? What are the consequences of being found without excuse? Though all are found without excuse, are any nonetheless excused? In other words, you brought your excuse up. It was found groundless. Does anybody get excused even though they are without excuse? If you are excused for being, even though you are without excuse, excuse, start again. If you are excused, even though you have no excuse, how did you get excused? I could go on with these. There's more fundamental obvious questions, obviously. That's kind of a joke. Laugh when you can. But you get the intellection, notion, concept. However, what you see here is the secondary theme of Romans again emerging, emerging here. There is none righteous. That is the secondary theme. You see that back in, uh, he repeats David and he repeats uh, Solomon and he repeats Isaiah in Romans 10 through 18. And of course, as you know, that is a reference from David of Bathsheba. And, and that incident, and that ties you back into Saul, which got us all the way back to Judges 19 because of Misty, right? So hopefully you remember all of that, and if you don't, it's okay. We are on the Internet. Now, hopefully you also see that this secondary theme of Romans uh, emerging again, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short. That comes up a little bit later in Romans. And this is, as I said, the secondary theme of Romans. Therefore, if this is true, if there's none righteous, no, not one, all have fallen short. Therefore, if that's the, the hypothesis, and it's not just a hypothesis, it is the, a true factual statement. If that is true, and it is true, therefore, because that is true, therefore, salvation must be given freely by His grace. You follow that? It can only be that. It can only be so. No other possibility for eternal life exists but by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the primary theme of Romans. That is uh, Romans 1.17, as you know. Romans 1.17 is the recurring thesis of Romans. It's almost on every page of Romans. Paul constantly bringing it up. He's, he's using the tried and true ball bat method that I find so appropriate. He's beating and pounding it in. To make sure all of us have it. Because why? Because he knows. He knows that there's a snare that awaits those who cannot grasp this. And so this is his, um, this is his attempt to make sure everyone is equipped for what is coming against them. And then, uh, and then once again, he has this whoop yourself upside the head system. It's coming forth again here in Romans 19 and 20. So let's read this, 19 and 20, Romans 3. Now we know. Okay, whenever that happens, what's the obvious question? Do you really have any idea? Do you know? He's telling you you know. What are the chances that you know? I bet you you don't know and you don't know you don't know, which makes you a 16-year-old teenage boy, right? That's what's happening to you. Now we know. I bet you don't know. I'm positive you don't know. I'll ask for hands of everybody who doesn't know. Hi, David. How are you doing? You're in, you're in the middle. When did you get back? 
Oh, cool. So, how long are you staying? People on the internet want to know these things. You know, there's, there's 14,000 of them, and they're all now turning it up to hear you. Another how many? Another two weeks. Well, it's good to see you. What did you bring? I don't see how that helps me, David. I, I really don't. But I'm glad for you. I'm glad. Okay. Now we know, and I hope you know. I could ask you to tell me that you know. I could ask you to write out what it is that you think this says. But I'll assume that you would rather hear what it really says. Okay, what I think it really says, and we'll see if I'm right. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Bunch of questions there. What does the law say? What do, where did the law come from? Who are the those who are under the law? If you were here for the previous 36, 37 lectures, you know who that is. That every mouth may be stopped. What's every mouth saying? That, by the way, is a reference to who in the Scriptures? Goliath, who is a picture of who in the Scriptures? The Antichrist, who is also uh, has his element within societies or within creation, if you will, that also re- bring reproach to God. Every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds... Guilty of what? Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight, for the law is the knowledge of sin. Okay? We have to know what the law says, because the law stops every mouth. I said last week, the the mouth shuts people up. The obvious question immediately is why are people bringing reproach to God? What's in it for them? Is the barking dog bothering anybody? Is it? Okay, can we shut the door? Is it, does it belong to you, Eric, do you think? No? For the first time, Lindsay and Eric are better parents? It's not, not Lucifer? Lucy? Okay, dogs are welcome here. Babies are welcome here. Can't let the dogs into the auditorium because we don't own the building. I tried that once and it was a complete mess, literally and figuratively. Okay. Let me back up a second. Can you, can we withstand the assaults that will certainly come from those who seek to profit from law-based pharisaical religiousness? Do you recognize it when you see it? And Pharisee is probably not a strong enough adjective. I like to drop the H when I talk about Pharisaical religiousness. I like to call it parasitical religiousness or parasites. That's much more accurate. And that's what they're doing. Okay, anyway, let me reread Romans 3, 19 through 20 again. Now we know. He is telling, that you, telling you that you know something because you've read up to this point and you understand the first uh, three chapters of Romans, which are uh, uh, extraordinary, aren't they? That whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty, guilty before God. Therefore, since that's true, therefore... By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be saved. What did he just tell you? No possibility that you can be saved by some kind of law-based, obedience-based, works-based system. 
if you think that you are saved by grace, but you got to have some law obedience system also, what's called law plus grace, or law and grace, you are in deep trouble. You are against the book of Romans. It is not law or grace. I'm sorry. It's not law and grace. It is law or grace. Let me say that again. It is not law and grace or law plus grace. It is either law or grace. And it is only grace. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be saved in His sight. And that's whose sight? That's God's sight. He's the only one that counts. He's the only one that saves. He's the only one that condemns. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So he tells you that law teaches you something. It teaches you about what? It teaches you sin. Now, last Sunday, you may remember, we asked some questions. More fundamental, obvious questions. Like, where did the law come from? Why do we have law? What is the differences between moral law, scientific law, natural law, human law? Why is law ubiquitous? Universal. That's what that word means. Universal. Why is law universal? When I say universal, I mean that law governs everything. It governs... I used to teach science, as you know, and I had my class and I would ask them to explain to me how gravity works, and they had no idea. And they would postulate. And I said, well, gravity works because there is an invisible troll right there. And when I let go of this, the invisible troll grabs it and sucks it down and puts it on the ground. There, did you see him? That's how he does it. And I asked them to disprove my brilliant hypothesis, what I call Chronister's invisible troll theory. And you can't disprove it because you can come up with no theory that proves uh, our... Uh, you can describe gravity, but you don't know how it works. How do I know that you don't, you don't know how it works? Yeah, let me go back here. It is a law of gravity, isn't it? That's what we call it. Where did it come from? What's its purpose? Who designed it? Who put it into action? Why did he do so? Law is universal. Gravity is not just here. Gravity is throughout the creation. It is universal. That's why I'm so fascinated by quantum physics. Which, what am I going to do with quantum physics? Really soon. We have ordered your book, your quantum physics book, and we are passing them out to you. We ordered 20. How come we didn't order how many are sitting here today? Because you, rest of you usually don't come. We'll get more. We will make you do what? Read a physics book in church. It's good for you. Because it teaches you the universal aspects of law, or what's called the ubiquity of law. No flesh is saved by law. That in itself is incredible. It's absolutely unique to the Bible. No one else says that no flesh is saved by law. In fact, everybody else that has ever had any religious thought says that flesh is saved by law, by obedience. The only, the only source that says no flesh is saved by law is Scripture. Only God says that. Man says, well, we've got to have a little law in there. And the guy wants to make the law most of the time. And once he has the law made, he wants you to follow it. And if you don't follow it, what happens? 
Yeah, you've got to pay him money. That's right. That's how it works. No flesh is saved by law. No one says that except the God of the Bible. Scripture is absolutely alone that declaring that the just shall live by faith. Or that salvation comes by grace through Christ alone. No one else says this concept of salvation by grace. So today we're going to press forward into the implications of the ubiquity of law. I want you to say that with me. I'll write it down because it's hard to, hard to spell. I'm not going to look. Ubiquity of law. Very important principle. First thing that we're going to go to when your books arrive in the quantum physics uh, uh, book that we're buying you is we're going to turn to the chapter on the ubiquity of law. So I want you to... You don't have to say it to me. You can. It makes me feel really good to hear you all become just like me. <laughs> it's my deep plan, right? But you really do need... <laughs> Thank you for that 10-second delay, Lorenzo, that I'm very fond of. He gets my jokes, but it's got this little cute delay that I love. Um... <laughs> But you have to understand it, the ubiquity of law. Memorize it. it is a very, it's very important to you that you understand the magnitude of the, that truth, that you understand the consequences of the fact that, that law is omnipresent. It's everywhere throughout all of creation. It is omnipresent. What's the obvious question? How did it get that way? How did this happen? And before we start that, however, a little something came up this week, as you guys know. This is where we do a little grab trail. Lots of times, I used to when I was teaching, I would draw Elmer Fudd. I'm not so good anymore. He looks more like Sad Sack now as I've gotten older. But... But I do have the plaid hat. So before we get to the ubiquity of law, a, a few somethings came up this week, and, and so here's the bunny trails. And first, I've been asked by some of you, is it true that you shot yourself with an nail gun? Yes, it's true. I brought it. Yeah. Thank you for, for that respect. <laughs> it's a three and a half, uh, I'm sorry, it's a three and a quarter inch uh, galvanized ring shank. And um, so, yes, it's true. I'm, as you know, three days a week I have to uh, frame because my wife is a shopaholic, as you know, and it's got to do what I got to do to deal with all of that. It's extraordinary. <laughs> Everybody laugh, dear. They know that can't possibly be true. <laughs> I was hoping to fool one. <laughs> Not one went to my side. How does that make us feel? <laughs> you good, me bad. Anyway, at a, a three and a quarter inch ring shank, because I've got to frame this room, roof system that has a three foot overhang. So what I'm doing is the outlooks uh, with the flying Lorenzos. Actually, only one flying Lorenzo now, because the other one has a real job. Congratulations. And how come you got that real job? Because of that incredible reference letter. Isn't that right? Okay. Make sure you tell everybody. Anyway, I'm up there with the flying Lorenzo, 
And I said, this could be tricky because I'm going to shoot into a gang plate. And the gang plate is what holds the, the top cord of the truss to the strut cords and or the struts and the bottom cord. And so it's a big gang plate and it's solid metal and it's got perforations in it and I'm going to shoot through it in order to hit this outlook. And I told uh, Flying Lorenzo that this is tricky and nail could come out and it could ricochet and and it, it could double fire, all kinds of big big problems. And so I, having shot myself before, see, you'll see that slightly bent. I drove one right, same kind of deal. I'm up on a roof in the wintertime. And that was a long, long time ago, 20 years ago, I remember. But I uh, blew that finger up. It took me a couple of years before I could play banjo again. You asked, can you, could you ever play banjo? And you would, be, you would be right to ask that. But I told him it could double fire and to watch out, and it did, and it went right through my thumb on my left hand. Whoosh, just like that. And uh, like I said, second time, 25 plus years of framing. And Bill, who's not here, he, he couldn't wait for me to go downstairs, and what did he want to do? Oh, yeah, give me that. And that's why I mentioned ring shank, because there's, there's little rings on this thing. So Bill pulled it out, and, and hence the moral of the story is that us old framers uh, may be slow. Okay, we are slow, but we are fun to watch. And that's what happened. But that's not what people have been asking me about this week, other than that, as you're aware. Obviously, the two much-discussed topics this past week is the proposal that the nation of Israel do something. What does the nation of Israel have to do to make the uh, United States executive branch happy? It has to return to its 1967 borders, okay? That has come up. That's a big deal. And the other thing that has come up, as is, is, uh, Bill Guernsey mentioned and as Jack mentioned, is um, uh, this doomsday cult that declared yesterday, May the 21st, 2011, is the day of the rapture. Uh, again, that would be yesterday. I think the evidence may be against him, or as Bill said, perhaps uh, we have now been placed into the tribulational period. And I, I don't think, by the way, I know that the rapture does not start the tribulation, just, just in case, though I, I believe it is shortly after that. But anyway, uh, both of these events, the doomsday cult and the 67 borders question, uh, caused much confusion. And whenever we have confusion on theological matters, then naturally that results in supposed uh, Bible experts rushing onto the cable and radio shows to add to the confusion, which is what they do best. But actually, the two subjects really do indeed, um, the two subjects, the 67 borders of Israel, uh, as I get rid of the 67 borders, Israel under pressure and the rapture, Israel being threatened and the rapture are, in fact, the same discussion. So in that sense, it's a good thing. If properly understood, if, and I say if uh, a lot when I do this, if properly understood, they will be discussed together. They are side-by-side issues. They directly connect the executive branch, as I said, of the United States has called for Israel to retreat to indefensible borders and to concede land. And what do they want them to do that for? What is the goal? Why would this come? By the way, we have had uh, anti-Israel presidents before. Jimmy Carter comes to mind. I apologize to Mr. Okay, I don't. I don't. 
But we have had anti-Israel uh, presidents before and anti-Israel policies before. And we will have anti-Israel policies again. This is an anti-Israel policy. And they want Israel to do something that everyone knows is futile. Everyone knows it. The whole world knows. By the way, why did we get up with 1967 borders? Because of a war. They want them to return to the very borders that they were attacked at before. So what's the, returning to those borders got them attacked once, or being at those borders got them attacked. Returning to them, I promise you, will get them attacked again. There is no hope. It is a false hope of peace that they are doing this for. You return to these borders and we will give you a false hope of peace. And you will be massacred, but maybe maybe you'll be dumb enough to believe us. Will Israel fall for somebody who comes to them with a promise of a false promise of peace? Will they fall for it? Yes, they will. They do. It is in the Bible. And I emphasize false hope because it is exactly that. The Bible is absolutely clear. Israel will be attacked and attacked and attacked. The prophecies do not leave any room to suggest otherwise. Ezekiel 38, most uh, obvious uh, place in Scripture to see a pre-tribulational uh, attack by a, a large army. And, of course, the uh, tribulation is filled with nothing but the seeking of the destruction of Israel. As the end of the age of the Gentiles comes, and when did the age of the Gentiles start? I'll help you. 586 B.C. What happened in 586 B.C.? Nebuchadnezzar did something. He swept through Israel. He swept through Assyria. We've not had... Uh, an Assyria or an Israel sense, and now we have both of them back. That's the most important prophecy you can cling to, if you will, in this, in this final age of the Gentiles. But it started 586 B.C., and it will go until the tribulation. And we never could figure out when the tribulation would come because we never had a nation of Israel and we didn't have a nation of Assyria, and now we have both. We call one Kurdistan, as you've heard me say many times, but that's Assyria, and it is back as a result of the recent war in the 2000s. And Israel, of course, back in 1948. The prophecies don't leave any, they don't stutter. As the end of the age of the Gentiles comes, as it nears, and it ne it's nearing, because as I said, we have Israel, we have Assyria. Israel is in grave danger. The time of Jacob's trouble is coming for them. The Great Tribulation, it is called as well. Daniel's 70th week, it is called as well. The time of darkness, or name after name of it in Scripture. Israel will be targeted. It's relentless. It's a supernatural effort as well to once again exterminate the Jews. And this begins, however, not with the rapture of the bride of Christ, as, as has been trumpeted lately by this uh, organization. It does not begin... The tribulation does not begin with the rapture of the bride of Christ. It begins uh, with the confirming of the covenant between the Antichrist and Israel. That's what begins the uh, tribulation. And that is a covenant of peace that protects Israel. But it is not true. It's a lie. It's a deception. Okay? So understand that. If that's the case, 
If that's how the tribulation begins, what's the primary purpose of the snatching away of the bride of Christ or the church? What's the primary purpose of the rapture of the church? Well, people disagree with me over that. Can you imagine? Well, they disagree with me. That can't, I'm stunned. I, I feel bad for them that they're all wrong. But um, I just want you to know there is dispute. I'm going to give you my view, which, of course, is the correct view. That's correct. Thank you. Uh, but there is some dispute, and they do argue with me, and they always lose, but doesn't stop them. The purpose of the rapture of the church is not to save the church from the tribulation, as so many say it is. That happens to be an afterthought, but that's not the purpose. And frankly, we're going up to the judgment seat of Christ, and that isn't going to be a picnic for a lot of us. And you don't get to blame me there. You're on your own. I'm going to be over here dodging my own lightning bolts. You're on your own. You're not going to be unsaved at the judgment seat, but your life is going to be put before you and how you do, whether or not all of it is wood, hay, and junk, and burns up and valueless. You are saved, saved by essentially by fire. All of what you have done is gone. You are still saved. Not a good day for you. Still a good day. Not a good day. Does that make sense? Anyway, the purpose is not for you to avoid judgment. You're not going to avoid judgment. The purpose is not for you to avoid the tribulation, even though that is a tertiary result. The purpose of the snatching away of the bride of Christ is to isolate Israel. It's to put Israel alone on the earth. The focus now will have left the church because we are in the church age from Acts uh, 2, I believe, would be the correct uh, um, chapter in Scripture 2 now is the gathering of the church, the spotless making of the church, the, the uh, Eleazar searching for Rebekah, bringing her to Isaac, who she has never seen. That is a picture, Abraham sending his trusted servant Eleazar to retrieve Rebekah and teach her of the, of the son that she has not seen. That is what's going on now. Uh, the Christ has left and the Holy Spirit has replaced him and is gathering up the bride to take and adorning the bride and bringing her and teaching her about the Son. Okay, That's how it works. That's what we're in. That's called the church age. And when the church is taken away, when the bride, when the marriage is, is the betrothal process is ended and the bridegroom has come for the bride, and I just did a marriage yesterday. I had a couple, what I have, maybe 200 people there. And I... Um, I told them what this all was about. They were very interested. Weren't they, Misty? Yes, they were. They loved all 90 minutes of it. Okay, I only went for about seven or eight minutes. But you should someday I should film the audience of a wedding that I do. Are you asking me a question, dear? No. No, I thought you were raising your hand. Never raise your hand. You know better than that. Yes. But... Uh, Anyway, the point is, is that I began to explain to them the Hebrew betrothal ceremony in a very truncated form, and it is just fascinating to watch the uh, the audience when you do that. I I am not there for the bride and the groom. They know what's coming, and they think it's kind of going to be funny, because they've heard it in the premarital counseling. But um, for the audience, it's it's sometimes shocking. 
I had two people come up to me and say, I have, I'm stunned. One of them was an older gentleman and, um, and very complimentary. And the other was the guy that ran the public address system. And I found that to be actually pretty normal because the guy running the public address system does one thing a lot. What's that? Weddings. And the old guy had obviously, older guy, I shouldn't say old guy because he's probably two years younger than me, but a very refined, handsome gentleman compared to me. And he came up and said the same thing. I've been to a lot of weddings. I never heard the 12-step Hebrew betrothal system before. He didn't say it in those exact words because he didn't know that's what it was. But he did say, I just haven't seen anybody make those kind of connections at a marriage before or a wedding. Well, that's what you're supposed to do. That's your job. If you're a pastor, read uh, Ezekiel 10. Anyway, it isn't about the church. It's never been about the church. The church is taken, and now the focus goes back to Israel. The replacement theology is a lie. Israel has not been replaced. Israel is on a parallel track. The church is here, and it's going along from the... See, it used to be Israel, 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 and then I go to the rejection of Israel in Matthew 12, and now the church does, or Israel does this, and the church goes from here. When the church is raptured, then Israel comes back, and I have the tribulational period, the seven year, or the seven, or Daniel's 70th week. That's how it works. The nation of Israel, we really figured out that it isn't replacement theology. 1948, when the nation came back, and now what, 2001, we have Assyria? My goodness. Two of those are extraordinary. That should forever end replacement theology. What are the chances it'll do it? None. There's still people that want to believe they are the nation of Israel. They're not. Sorry. Not really. Fake sorry. Laugh anyway because there's visitors here. But the bride has been taken and the wife of Jehovah the wife of YHVH. So I have the bride of Christ and the wife of YHVH. They're distinct. One is the church, one is Israel. Are there Jews in the church? Yes. Are they going to be snatched up? Yes. Do they want to be? No. They want to stay and fight for Israel. Ask them. They're going to be kicking and screaming all the way up. And they're going to want a, a, they're, they're going to want a rifle and go right back down. Especially if they're especially now that they're an immortal body that they have. But there'll be 144,000 of those anyway and a couple of witnesses. So the issue isn't that Israel is abandoned. It isn't. The focus, God's focus is now back on them. Remember the three reasons for the tribulation. Isolate and turn the will of the stubborn people of Israel back towards Jesus Christ who is the I Am and the Messiah and the King of the Jews. To get them to realize that. To get them to mourn for what they did when they rejected Him in Matthew 12 and have rejected Him ever since. It's to turn Israel to the true God of Israel, which is Christ, right? It is also to end the wickedness of this age. It is to end the wicked ones of this age. That's number two. Number three is worldwide revival. Trust me, there's going to be a lot of cool things happening and people are going to go, okay, I either take the mark and die eternally or I don't and I live eternally. Piece of pie, easy as cake. You don't get a simpler decision than that. And that's what happens 
in the tribulation. Now, Israel is cut off when the bride is snatched away because we're all out here going, we're going to fight. We're going to stand with Israel. We're not going to let her be isolated. We're going to... Poof, gone. And now Israel is cut off and surrounded by those who seek her destruction. And I want you to note the surrounding theme. It is prominent in Scripture. What have we just been covering where I have a surrounded theme? We have Sodom, right? I have a surrounded theme in Sodom. We have Judges 19. I have a surrounded theme in Judges 19. I have a surrounded theme in Revelation. I have a surrounded theme in Ezekiel 38. I have a surrounded theme... Most prominently, and this is an error that's made so much of the time, always at Ishtar, right? Which is really first fruits. It's not Ishtar. There is no Good Friday. You all know that, right? But the best surrounded theme in the Bible is Psalm 22. Uh, 22, 13, I think, and, and 15 and 16. Look me up. It's a classic double reference, the Hebrew principle of double reference. Uh, in Psalm 22, 13, 22, uh, uh, 12, and 22, 16. I got that out of order. Uh, it's it's uh, 12, 13, and 16. Sorry. Let me repeat that. I wrote it down. How smart of me. Psalm 22, 12, Psalm 22, 13, Psalm 22, 16 is a classic double reference passage in Scripture. You have to understand double references in Scripture. It's the same as Isaiah 7. It's the same as Zechariah 9. Understanding the Hebrew principle of double reference, that's essential to you as a student of Scripture, especially at Psalm 22.1, because what is Psalm 22.1? That's one of the seven sayings of Christ on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And most people who teach the Bible, make a horrible, blasphemous, heretical error there. And they say that Christ is forsaken by the Father. Which, by the way, is impossible. It's a double reference. Christ never says, my God, my God, does he? What's Christ always say? What's your first clue that this is a double reference? Christ always says, my Father, my He's the only one that gets to say that. We get to say what? Our Father. He says, my Father. That's how it works. It's a double reference. You have to understand the principle of double, re uh, double reference. It answers the question as to why Jesus Christ quoted Psalm 22.1. Because He knows who's going to say it and when they're going to say it. Who's going to say it? Israel. When are they going to say it? during the campaign of the Battle of Armageddon, the eight stages of the Battle of Armageddon. Okay? And it answers the question to why, as why Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, quoted Psalm 22. He knew very well who was going to say it. There are some things in Psalm 22 that are said by Israel. There are some things in Psalm 22 that are said by the Messiah. And they literally go verse by verse. That's called double reference. They're separated by time. There is a time difference. Christ said 22.1 knowing that Israel would say 22.1. Separated by time by 2,000 years. Same thing happens in Isaiah 7, Zechariah 9, as I said. You have to get that on your own. If not, come and see me and I'll explain it to you after the sermon. There's a bunch of sermons that I have done, lectures that I've done, that explains the Psalm 22 double reference. And um, 
Isaiah 7, double reference. Anyway, that leads me to another pet peeve of mine, uh, uh, rant number 164, for those of you who keep track of all my rants. This is number 164. <coughs> you have heard this past week from an uncountable number of commentators that Jesus Himself, the I Am, the God Himself in the flesh, He's called the Lord God Almighty. He's called Mighty Father, by the way. You've heard them say that Jesus doesn't know, doesn't know the time of His return for the church. You've heard them say it, haven't you? They say, well, this... How do I say something nice? I have to be nice because I have all those people who listen to me on the Internet. And I want to be nice. I want them to think that I'm nice. (laughs) Maybe I haven't succeeded based on your response. We got this dingleberry down there who claimed he knew that yesterday was the day and the time of the rapture. And you had all these commentators coming out and they would say things as silly as he said. And they would say this. Even Jesus Christ doesn't know the time and the hour of the rapture. What they would say one after another. Over and over again. How many of you heard them? Very good that you didn't raise your hand high. Very good, but you kind of let me let me know. Uh, they all did it, and they're they're everywhere. And this is, as I said, rant number one sixty four. Think about that. I want you just logically think about it. Jesus Christ is the Creator of all of the creation. Inside of that is time, time, space, energy, and matter. He is the Creator of time. He is outside of time. He is omniscient. He has to be omniscient in order to be outside of time. He's also omnipresent, omnipotent. To say that the creator of time, the omniscient God, doesn't know when he will return for the rapture of the church. Who? Omniscience is not, here's newsflash, Omniscience is not compatible with the phrase, doesn't know. So if you say Jesus Christ doesn't know, then what have you just said? You have said that He is not the Creator of time, He is not outside of time, He is not omnipresent, and He is not omniscient. How are you doing now? You are not doing good. You big time wampum trouble. But out came the eager experts proclaiming that Christ is not God, because that's what they're doing when they say that. Do they know that? Yeah, they know it. Lots of them know it. They can't wait to say it. That's exactly what they're doing, and they declare as loud as they can, and even Jesus Christ doesn't know. And it is blasphemy. Let me say that again. It is blasphemy to do what they do. It is heresy. And it is ignorance of the 12-step Hebrew betrothal ceremony. All they have to do is go through through the 12 steps. How simple is that? Just read one book. 
How much trouble is it to read one book? How can you be a pastor? I don't want to say this in a disrespectful manner. Okay, I do want to say it in a disrespectful manner. How can you call yourself a pastor? Go out and say something like Jesus Christ is not omniscient when all you had to do, sir, is read one book on the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. All you had to do is learn 12 simple steps and then you do not say stupid things like Jesus Christ doesn't know ever. It should instinctively, look, you've got a verse that you don't understand, I get that. But don't throw out all of Scripture because you're too lazy to figure out one verse. Which is exactly what they've done. And it's done all over again. It happens with Psalm 22. They can't figure out Psalm 22, so they say, well, the God the Father turned His back on God the Son because He couldn't look at sin. How ridiculous. He has no choice but to look at sin. He looks at you, looks at me. How in the world can you say he can't look at sin? He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's going to look at sin when it's in the lake of fire. That's, the, that's what makes him weak, is looking at sin. How could you possibly say something that ignorant? Read one book. It isn't that difficult. Okay. Jesus at Mark 13. I'll help, I'll help you. I'm not speaking to you. I'm speaking to those who, who I'm doing the sermon preparation for. They won't go to www.lazypastor.com anymore. They, they know that they can find some other sucker who gives his stuff away for free. Jesus said, Mark 13, 32, 37. Matthew 24, 36. Luke 21, 34 through 36 is not saying that he doesn't know. He is not saying that he doesn't know the time or the hour of his return. He has no choice but to know he's omniscient. He is saying. So if that can't be true, then all you have to do is say, okay, I obviously have that wrong. So what is he really saying? He is saying this that the snatching of his bride, the precise, exact timing of the snatching of his bride, or the rapture, which uh, uh, obviously makes churches lots of money to come out and say things like this, but the exact, precise timing, he's saying Christ is, is hidden within the God-given, the God-ordained, the God-designed 12-step Hebrew betrothal ceremony. Because the tw- in that 12-step ceremony pattern, the phrase, but my Father only, that phrase, or if you wish, only the Father knows, that phrase is from the tenth step. It's word for word. It is exactly the tenth step. So they ask him a question. It would be the equivalent, I've said it thousands of times, if you ask me, Steve, what time are we going to go to work tomorrow? And I start singing the Star Spangled Banner. What time does work start? (laughs) Fourth of July is a great answer. I'd have said it dawn, but I'll take Fourth of July. (laughs) Obviously, he did not fall and land on his head the other day. I was shot in the thumb. But listen, do you understand what I'm trying to say? Jesus Christ said, they said, when is this exact time and exact uh, of the snatching away? When is the precise time? And he said, 
but my father only. And they knew what that meant. Why did they know? Because they're Jews. It would be like the same thing. Who gives this man to be married to this woman? I said that. I now pronounce you man and wife. I said that. You may kiss the bride. I said that. If I said that to you, if you said to me, when is the rapture of the church? And I said, I now pronounce you man and wife. You would say, oh, that's the last step of the uh, marriage ceremony, wouldn't you? Somewhere in that answer is the answer, or somewhere in that statement is the answer. Jesus Christ, infinite God, answered the question, if you wish to know when the rapture occurs, because they wanted to know, He said, study the Hebrew marriage ceremony, specifically the tenth step, because that is the step that tells you when the time of the rapture is. How simple is that? How would you take something that simple and then throw it out and say, Jesus Christ is not omniscient God, which is heresy. Why would you choose blasphemy over reading one book? Well, they do. And if you do that, then and only then will you not be fooled and fleeced by doomsday cults who are worth $72 million. Did you see that? $72 million bucks this guy's made off of his... So material that he sells. Proving, once again, that being consistently wrong is not unprofitable, especially for churches. I hate to say it. I don't want to insult you. No, I really do. I really do. Not you. Okay, some of you. The dumbest people I have ever met go to church every Sunday. And they like being dumb. That's why I say... Proverbs all the time. Why? How long, you simple ones, will you love the simple? That is a rebuke from God. What is that? Proverbs what? Come on, help me. I say it all the time. I should know it. Let me say it for somebody that may not know it. How long, you simple ones, will you love the simple? Proverbs one twenty-two. Every time you love the simple, you're getting your clock cleaned. You're giving somebody $72 million. Because why? You love the simple. What's he really saying to you? How long, stupid people, will you love being stupid? That's what he's saying. Is that cold? Is that harsh? That's what he's saying. Okay, and uh, church is making money doing this stuff. Is, happens every time, and that, as you know, is promised to ramp number 43. And I'll skip most of it and start the sermon now. We can start the sermon. I actually wrote that. Okay, we can start the sermon now. Where was I? I wrote. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The ubiquity of law. The ubiquity of law. Very good. Trying to answer the without excuse question, right? With the universalism. Of law, I'm going to use the universalism of law to answer um, the uh, no excuse or the without excuse. All of creation is governed, all of creation coupled with God's plan of salvation, all of creation is governed by law and you couple that with God's plan of salvation that has a belief system. Okay, That has a belief system. You see, that's very, very important to understand. 
Why did the Spirit God, God is Spirit, why did the invisible God, invisible God, why did the invisible Spirit God design His plan, His plan of salvation thusly with a belief, or if you wish, a faith, belief, faith, grace, and blood? Not necessarily in that order. Why did He design it that way? And yes, Joel, you have to move, baby. Got to help the new guy. Why? And you can still pretend to listen. They all do back there. Actually, a card game breaks out. I'm trying to fix that, but I have no leadership here. Anyway, I have a belief, grace, blood system. Why belief? We're going to answer that. All you got to do is read John 20, 29, which is where Thomas is sticking. He's looking at the wounds and the wounds are there, and there's something very odd here. He's putting his hands in the wound, right? What's he seen? I've said that many times. I believe that he has seen exactly what happened in the Mount of Transfiguration. He knows that this is the Shekinah glory inside of a human flesh that he has added to himself. And so he tells Thomas, he said, listen, it's good that you see me and you know that I'm God, but blessed are those who do not see what you guys have seen, and yet they believe. It's a belief system. First Peter eight nine one through or chapter one eight and nine Second Corinthians we'll read that next week seven through eighteen there's your answer as to why it's a belief system belief is a spiritual reality isn't it it's not a physical reality you can't put belief on a where's your belief this is a pen that's physical this is soda physical where's belief describe it for me. It's metaphysical. It's non-physical. It's immaterial. It's spiritual. We are asked to believe something. We are asked to respond spiritually. We are saved with a spiritual process. Does that make sense to you? Well, it ought to. You're a spiritual being created by a spiritual being. He saves you with a spiritual process. He does not save you with a physical process. Any of you who think that you're going to be saved by a physical process, you're nuts. You're saved by a spiritual process. The only thing that makes sense. Our spiritual, we're living souls. We're spiritual beings because our spiritual component is a different substance than our physical component. Substance dualism is proved by God's salvation system that is belief-based, blood-based, grace-based. And that's why I quote Charles Ryrie as often as I can. A good test for any pastor, any preacher, any gospel message is this. Did the pastor give his listeners something to believe or something to do? In other words, was the sermon asking you to believe something or do something? That which is good, that sermon that is good is asking you to believe something. That system, that sermon that asks you to do something, whoa, baby, be afraid of that. The spiritual versus the physical. Grace versus works. Works are a product, a result of, a derivative. There's a good math word. Works are a derivative of belief. The spiritual compliance, I'm sorry, the physical compliance comes from a spiritual belief, not the reverse. And the ubiquity of law 
The ubiquity of law. Thank you. The ubiquity of law makes all of that obvious. How so? I'll explain it next week. Let's rise and be dismissed.